Hi, this is Gail Trotter, host of Right in DC on podcasts and the Gail Trotter Show on YouTube. And I'm so excited to kick off this really interesting conversation that we're gonna have tonight with Anastasia Bowden. Anastasia, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hi, Gail. Thanks for having me. And you're calling in from where? I'm calling in from Sacramento, California, belly of the beast. The belly of the beast. You are a brave woman to live in California, especially in the last year with all of the restrictions we've seen on our Bill of Rights. Well, somebody's got to change it. <laughs> hey, I, we need that. We need uh, people who aren't afraid to... Um, go in, you know, impossible situations and try to turn the ship around, right? Exactly. Well, let me describe a little bit about Anastasia's background for you. She is an attorney in Pacific Legal Foundation's Economic Liberty Project, where she challenges anti-competitive licensing laws and laws that restrict freedom of speech. And we've had several clubhouses talking about the First Amendment, so you all know that this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Anastasia's law practice largely consists of representing entrepreneurs and small businesses who find themselves in a bureaucratic nightmare when simply trying to earn an honest living. One of the most egregious examples of the laws she challenges are competitors' veto laws, which essentially require entrepreneurs to get permission from their competitors before opening their doors. I bet you a lot of people out there have never even heard of this. Uh, it's such a it's, it's such an affront to our free market system. Anastasia has represented moving limousine and shuttle companies in competitor veto lawsuits across the country, achieving legislative reform in Montana, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. In addition to litigating, Anastasia testifies before legislatures on the impact of occupational licensing on entrepreneurship. Her writings on all matters of law and liberty have been featured in the Washington Post, another belly of the beast, the Chicago Tribune, Forbes, and more. In 2015, Anastasia was selected for the Claremont Institute's prestigious John Marshall Fellowship. A Southern California native, Anastasia earned her BA with Dean's Honors from the University of California, Santa Barbara. She was drawn east to attend law school at Georgetown, where she was research assistant to Professor Randy Barnett, AKA the godfather of the Obamacare challenge. And prior to joining PLF, she worked at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies and at Washington Legal Foundation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, I think, you know, there's a book of the Bible called Esther. And in it, it talks about how she was made for a time like this. And I think reading what you have done in your legal career, I can't think of a better time for someone to be trying to advocate the right to earn a living than what we've seen in the last 12 months with this pandemic. So if you could give us a little bit of uh, background on what you're doing to try and lead us back to economic recovery and some of the challenges that you're seeing out there right now brought on by the, the bureaucratic regulations and emergency uh, dictates of these would-be petty tyrants, including Governor Newsom. Sure. Well, as you read from my biography, it's my job to represent entrepreneurs regularly um, in constitutional challenges to laws that restrict their ability to work. And, um, you know, that became all the more important during COVID when we saw full businesses just shut down. And, um, you know, often quite arbitrarily with little warning and with little ability to sort of pivot their business or even impose safety measures just to, you know, save what was left of their business um, during a time when most people were, were staying home. Um, and so we have brought a few challenges at Pacific Legal Foundation against really egregious, arbitrary shutdown orders. Certainly we weren't saying that the government had no place 
in helping to control the pandemic, but we did believe that the government has to be reasonable and it has to respect the Constitution when doing so. And so just to give you a few examples, we had uh, brought a lawsuit in Napa nearby Sacramento on behalf of an art gallery because the state had shut down uh, art galleries but left open every other retail business in the state and even left open museums. And so it's just completely arbitrary. I mean, there's no safety reason for that type of thing. Our clients had 3,500 square feet of space. They were only going to allow in six feet uh, people who could distance six feet at a time. So it just it didn't make any sense. That's crazy. What was the government's rationale for singling out? I think that's a theme that we're seeing over and over again during the pandemic, where the government arbitrarily gives exemptions for certain businesses or favored organizations or entities. Did the government present any rationale for uh, targeting this art gallery when, like you said, museums were open and other retail establishments were open? Well, you know, it uh, depends on the lawsuit. In this particular case, what's funny about this case is we we're going to bring a, a what's called a preliminary um, injunction motion to get immediate relief. And in that type of case, you actually have to give the government a little bit of heads up that you're seeking um, such extraordinary and emergency relief. And so when we told the government that we were going to bring this lawsuit, they just actually threw up their hands and said, oh, never mind, we're not enforcing the law that way. Uh, they gave up. That's great. So, and yeah, if you, you know, hadn't it's, been it's, there to to work on behalf, you work for a nonprofit organization, uh, but a lot of these business owners cannot pay for legal representations to vindicate their rights. So it's a good thing that you were able to make the government back down. Yeah, absolutely. We were really proud and the clients were really happy. I think the the sad part of all of that is that we didn't get to set the legal precedent that the government can't act that way. I mean, that's really why we're here is, is to you know, vindicate our individual clients' rights, but also to um, set the president that that's unconstitutional so that they can never do it again in the future. And the government sort of deprives us of that right. when it when it moots a lawsuit that way. I remember my husband wrote a note in law school dealing with the catalyst theory. And I don't remember all the ins and outs because it wasn't a note that I wrote, but it was something dealing with that idea that if if there's a lawsuit that triggers a government to back off, then is that can you continue the case to the fruition of the case to the decision so that the government and we saw this uh, last year in the New York City pistol case that went up to the Supreme Court where uh, they they challenged uh, New York's uh, New York City regulation and the city kind of backed off from it, but they tried to go forward with the lawsuit saying that, you know, it if they change it today, they can change it back tomorrow. And as you know, engaging in litigation is very costly, just the setup, the startup of it. And I think that is a great point that you make that in these cases where the government backs off, even though it's a good result, it doesn't fully vindicate the constitutional rights at stake. Yeah, and for that reason, the Supreme Court has in certain cases said that they're going to go ahead and take up the issue, particularly in COVID orders, because uh, the COVID cases have been so fast moving and, and you know, the, govern the governor or whoever's in charge um, is changing the orders so frequently that these cases are getting mooted. And so in certain cases, the courts have allowed cases to move forward, even though they're technically moot. The unfortunate thing, and this is kind of getting back to how we started this whole conversation, is that when it comes to economic liberty, courts don't seem to care as much. Um, when it comes to, you know, First Amendment rights, free speech, uh, freedom of practice of religion, um, in most cases, the rights to the right to bear arms, you know, some some rights that have been deemed, quote, fundamental uh, courts are looking at the laws a little bit uh, with a little bit more scrutiny and they're allowing the lawsuits to move forward. Now, when it comes to economic liberty, for some reason, courts don't care anymore. It's not considered fundamental. And I think that's just wrong. It is absolutely 
fundamental and central to people's well-being that they are able to earn a living and to keep the fruits of their labor. And it's something that, you know, we're also trying to do at PLF is to raise the standard of scrutiny that courts give to lawsuits uh, premised on the right to earn a living and to restore that fundamental right. Right. And when you think about that, uh, that's the key to communities. That's Arthur Brooks has written a lot about this, the idea that if you're able to earn, then you have a lot of self-worth. And when you deprive people of the ability to earn, it has psychological effects too, not just obviously tangible effects of not being able to support your family or support yourself, but there there's a grave cost to society. When you raise this about the, the right to earn a living, it does make me think of the cases from the 1930s talking about, and, and prior to that talking about liberty of contract and uh, some of the minimum wage laws that went up to the Supreme Court. And this is nothing new. This is something that the Supreme Court and our legislators have grappled with for a long time because obviously the government wants to have as much power as they can. And I think we're seeing different responses from state and local governments to the financial distress that people are in. Could you tell us a little bit about one of the uh, efforts by the LA mayor to try to make up for the financial costs of the pandemic to individuals? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like you said, the right to earn a living is so important to people's well-being um, and the right to self-help. There is a psychological effect that goes along with that, you know, not just being handed out something, but earning it themselves. And there's something so beautiful about that. And the right to do that was respected for so long, and it's just not anymore. And you see that not only in the courts when we go to challenge laws, um, but you see in the public policy world. You know, you see last night the mayor of L.A. proposed uh, a, quote, a poverty reduction plan for uh, next year, which will uh, look like it'll come in the form of handing out $1,000 with no strings attached um, to people to allegedly keep them out of poverty. That is not an anti-poverty plan. A thousand dollars is not an anti-poverty plan with no strings attached. It doesn't keep people out of poverty. That's redistribution. If you care about poverty, what you do is you reduce barriers to entering the workforce. You make it easy for people to pick themselves up by the bootstraps and to go to work and to create jobs and to engage in, you know, consensual, mutually beneficial transactions. That's the beauty of the free market. And you allow them to work. Giving them $1,000 is not a solution um, to unemployment or to poverty. Uh, in fact, you know, I think a lot of studies show that it keeps people in poverty. It, it creates a cycle of poverty. Um, so this is a theme that we see, not just in the courts and the public, but also in the public policy world, that there's this denigration of work. Like work is somehow seen as unimportant and maybe even, you know, like a dirty thing. Why should anybody have to work? It's so uh, denigrating to have to work. No, 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 no. Work is fundamental to people's well-being. And in fact, it's the quickest way um, to lasting prosperity and to uh, the, the standards of well-being rising. Yes, most people's number one asset is their earning ability. And to take that away from them is really devastating. And talking about this makes me think about the larger national debate on universal basic income. And a lot of people have referenced that Milton Friedman, the economist who was, you know, more on the conservative side, had you know good things to say about universal basic income. But I think, and, and obviously during the 2020 presidential debate, uh, Andrew Yang, who was one of the Democrat contenders, was trying to push for this, I don't remember if it was $1,000 a month or $1,000 a year, whatever it was. Uh, it was something that he was advocating. And it seemed to pick up a lot of traction. Uh, but I think you put it so well that it's not an anti-poverty program. It's really just blatant redistribution. And it makes me think of your background in challenging occupational licensing, 
which correct me if I'm wrong, I think the the theory on that is you shouldn't have to get a license to be a hairdresser or some of these uh, things that a lot of people can do without having to go to an expensive beauty school or some kind of uh, cer certificate program that really just enforces an, a, more of a monopolistic regulation of that industry. And of course, we could talk about the regulation of lawyers and how that's monopolistic, but I'll save that for another time. But is does that kind of tie into what we're talking about here with the occupational licensing and the idea that people should be able to go earn an income because your greatest asset is your uh, income earning ability? Yeah, that's absolutely it. It's we're just asking, let people go to work. People want to work. And, you know, the government now says that nearly a third of Americans have to ask for permission in the form of an occupational license before going to work. And it's not nothing. It is not, you know, a small fee uh, filling out some paperwork. Very often it is, you know, a, $500 for the permit alone, and then thousands of dollars in education and years of experience and multiple exams to do things like shampoo hair, or to be a locksmith, or to be a tree cutter, or, you know, these occupations that, that do not resemble jobs that needed licenses in the past. It's not doctors, it's not lawyers, it's not things that we traditionally consider uh, associated with licensure. It's jobs that could be the quickest path to entrepreneurship, the quickest path to earning a living for people who need economic opportunity the most because they should have low barriers to entry. It shouldn't require a lot of capital to get into that, that field. Um, and when we go to court, we're just saying, hey, let people work because these requirements don't match the dangerousness of the prospective job. And very often they're a handout to entrench business interests. Very often occupational licensure comes from uh, the incumbent businesses themselves who recognize that it is a barrier to competition and they seek to keep out competition through government barriers. And uh, our argument is that uh, the government cannot exclude people from the right to earn a living for protectionist reasons alone, solely to protect, you know, favored economic interests who lobby for these laws. So you're not buying the government's argument that it's protecting the consumer. Well, I think research bears out it doesn't. And when you think about that, the ability for people who have low skills to go into these areas where, you know, you have the ability to get out there and start making money right away if you don't have to pay for this licensing in the schools and it's it's sort of a first step on the road on the road to success, correct? Yeah, if you care about lifting people out of poverty, then you should care about cutting this type of red tape that does not serve the public. It does not create better outcomes or uh, higher public safety. It only serves to keep out people who were not able to protect themselves through the political process because they didn't have enough clout. You know, they didn't see these laws passing and couldn't show up and say, hey, you're going to kick me out of a job or prevent me from entering this industry. Um, you know, these laws are only having the effect of depriving those people of economic opportunity. But I think the, the good news is, is that courts are kind of waking up during COVID to this. It's so interesting to me because I've been litigating these cases for a long time and they're very difficult to win. Even these laws that are just crazy on their face, like the competitor's veto laws, which we can talk about, they're very hard to win. And yet during COVID, somehow courts started waking up to the importance of economic liberty. Maybe it's because of how widespread the shutdowns were and how they were just completely depriving people of their livelihoods. Um, we actually started to have courts strike down COVID orders, which is kind of amazing because I'm just trying to strike down, you know, laws that, uh, that, that, I mean, I could give you some crazy examples. We, we represented a hearing aid seller in uh, Florida against a law that required him to use 1980s technology that even the FDA has said is no longer relevant or needed <laughs> and serves no purpose except for driving up costs. Right. You know, I'd go to court trying to represent him and during normal times and courts do not care. There's no scrutiny given to those laws. And yet during a global pandemic, 
somehow some of these laws have been struck down and I just never would have expected that. You know, usually courts are super deferential to the government and then you would think during a public health crisis they would be even more deferential. But courts have been waking up during the pandemic and striking down some of these arbitrary laws and and sort of respecting that right to earn a living. So it's been welcome in my mind. So a silver lining from the COVID pandemic. So is that a, is it a constitutional argument that you're making against these occupational licensing requirements, or is it a different level of scrutiny? It, it depends on the lawsuit. Very often it is a constitutional argument that you cannot deprive people of their constitutional rights, including the constitutional right to earn a living, without due process. And what that means is the government just has to have a good reason for acting, right? If it just takes away your liberty without good reason, that's pure arbitrariness, and that violates due process. Um, But in other cases, we sometimes make statutory arguments. We make dormant commerce clause arguments. That's the argument that states are unduly burdening commerce between the states. That's a constitutional argument. Wasn't that a Um, mudflap case? I I vaguely remember a case from law school about one state that required truckers to change the mudflaps on the back of their cars or their trucks before they would go from one state to another. And I believe that was struck down as uh, unduly uh, prejudicial to the truckers from interstate commerce. Do you remember that case? Yeah, I do. I do. And that's exactly right that, you know, the Constitution was intended to free commerce between the states. That's one of the reasons that they replaced the Articles of Confederation was that the states were kind of engaging in trade wars. And so the argument goes that states cannot now unduly burden commerce between the states. Well, on a sort of related topic, I think it's very interesting on the question of board representation. And we have seen over the last few years a big push to have more representation on public company boards by women. And I think that for the largest public companies, they haven't really had a problem doing this. They were already doing it themselves. And they have been, I think, trying very hard to recruit women onto these boards. Uh, But as you know, there was a law in California essentially trying to put the thumbscrews to public corp- public companies that I guess have their headquarters in California on who should be represented on the boards, which sounds to me like a government quota, which we know is not acceptable. Could you tell us a little bit more about this law and your efforts at PLF to uh, challenge it? Yeah, absolutely. In 2019, California passed a woman quota for the boards of publicly traded companies, like you said. And it started out with just a minimum of one woman uh, per board, but that quota gradually increases to be about half. When it's an odd number, you round down, but it's about half women. And I think the travesty of all of this is what does a law like that make you think? It makes you think that women are vastly underrepresented. Yes. yeah, that women can't make it there on their own, <laughs> that women need government help to get to the boardroom. And the statistics just don't bear that out. Uh, you know, I think it was for nine straight quarters in a row prior to that law going into effect, women repre- female representation had increased. Women were making it to the boardroom on their own. We are not victims. We were, you know, we are not, we are certainly not victims of discrimination in every single boardroom in California. That's just not true. And that's a sad thing about this law is it perpetuates stereotypes about women. Um, you know, it leads to this victim narrative and suggests to, to people that women cannot make it without government help. And any woman who does make it to the boardroom only made it there now because of the quota. And I find that de- deeply patronizing and uh, unconstitutional. Well, and corporations are already trying to do this themselves. I I feel like there is a huge effort by the leading public companies to recruit women and to make sure that their voices are heard. And, you know, just on a little side note, I reached out to the person I knew at PLF and asked if there was someone who could come on this clubhouse and talk to me about all your great efforts to really push forward free market principles and the right to earn a living. And I asked if there was a woman who could speak to me about these issues. So 
I didn't need the government coming and telling me I must have a woman on Clubhouse to talk about these issues. I wanted to hear your perspective and it, it didn't have any, I knew the organization was great. So I knew I was pulling from a great organization and I think it's just absolutely ridiculous that the government thinks that they have to jump into this situation when the companies are already trying to do this and like you said, it really creates a taint against the participation of women on corporate boards. I, I couldn't have said it better than you did. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're just on the same page about this, maybe both as you know, women who have kind of made their own way. It's just deeply offensive to think about. I would hate to be in a position where people were assuming about me that I only made it to where I am because I was the beneficiary of a quota. You know, that would just take away from everything that I've worked for. And uh, it's when I found out that that law passed, it was like a gut punch to me. I just found it so offensive. And uh, beyond that, we know it's unconstitutional. The Constitution does not tolerate quotas based on immutable characteristics. You know, as as Chief Justice John Roberts said, if you want to get rid of discrimination, then quit discriminating. (laughs) Um, We don't perpetuate discrimination in the name of getting rid of discrimination. And there are real world consequences to this. Now, companies are moving out of California or moving their headquarters. Now, obviously, this is not the only thing that has uh, caused this. I think the high taxes and the business unfriendly uh, climate in California has led to a lot of businesses either moving. I think Larry Ellison has moved permanently to Hawaii. Elon Musk, I guess, has moved his headquarters to uh, Austin. And I think this is just of a piece where instead of California promoting American innovation, ingenuity, uh, development of new technology and new ways of basically solving the world's problems, California wants not only to micromanage things in an unconstitutional way, but really disadvantage the citizens of California. So you live there. How are people taking the um, the news that so many California businesses are leaving and that the taxes are being raised and all the things that have happened in the last 12 months, which I think have certainly created more stress on Californians? Yeah, there is what feels like a mass exodus. And it's true that it's due to a lot of reasons and the very hostile regulatory climate here. But I wouldn't doubt that the quota was part of it. Um, If you look at Norway, which put in a 50% woman quota, you know, a couple decades ago, uh, what they found after putting in that quota was one, it led to what's called a golden skirt phenomenon. And that's where just a few women occupied the board of multiple companies. So they were just selecting amongst the same very few women, meaning there was not widespread female beneficiaries. It was just a few women beneficiaries who benefited. They also found that many companies either converted back to private to have to, so they could avoid the quota. Yes. Or they left the country. So it would not surprise me if the quota was contributing, but getting back to it, as you said, it does feel like there's a mass exodus just anecdotally I've had so many friends tell me that they're considering leaving, you know, everywhere I look, neighbors, it's just Uber drivers. It just feels like everyone I talk to is leaving. (laughs) And the only upshot of that, or the only upside, I should say, is that I'm hoping it leads to a correction. Um, Finally, California is paying the price for its regulatory environment. For a long time, people tolerated it because there's so much beautiful sunshine and beautiful weather and there's been a lot of wealth here that could sustain the high taxes and and all of the painful fees Um, but finally people are leaving and I think that uh, that might mean that Californians are going to feel the effects of their bad policy and uh, I think that could ultimately be good (laughs) yeah and and thinking about the law why didn't they just say the board should be a hundred percent women I mean, I, you know, the rationale behind how you pick it and you said, well, if it's half, but it's an uneven number, then it could be less than half. And it just seems so absurd that they would try to mess with that. Now, clearly, if they're discriminating against people, that's a different kettle of fish. But that's not what we're talking about here. 
And there was a law that they were considering in Illinois that you mentioned uh, talking about not only quotas for women on these boards, but also for minorities. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And you were talking about, you know, if it's discrimination, of course, that's different. We, we all care about getting rid of discrimination. But these laws are affirmatively not about discrimination, about remedying discrimination or getting rid of discrimination. They're about equal representation. They seek equal numbers above everything, including consideration of individual merit or uh, individual characteristics. You know, in a completely discrimination-free society, you wouldn't expect equal representation entirely because representation will be based on the individual characteristics and preferences and proclivities of the applicants. You know, uh, races and genders, members of races and genders don't move in lockstep. We are all individuals. So it's ridiculous to assume that in a, in a discrimination-free world, there would be uh, equal representation. But there's this now, there's this new movement that elevates equal representation above equal opportunity. And I think that's really wrong-headed. And it leads to ugly consequences, like in Illinois, where they started out with a woman quota. Then they added a quota. You had to also have one black member on your board of directors. And then this bill ended up stalling because the different caucuses ended up battling over which races were entitled to be part of the quota. And it just shows you how ugly this gets when people start bartering and arguing over who should get benefits on the basis of race or sex. Um, it's really something we don't want the government getting into. It's ugly business. It, it makes it seem as if these characteristics that we're born into, that we have no control over, we're born into them. Um, are the most important things when, in fact, they're completely arbitrary when it comes to merit and they should not play a factor into, uh, you know, what positions we ultimately get. That Illinois proposed law certainly does not sound unifying. And I think we should be looking for things that unify us more than divide us at this point. Uh, switching to this other area of law that you have spent a lot of time on, tell us a little bit about the certificate of need cases where you need permission from existing businesses to engage in your own business. Yeah, these laws are really quite shocking. I think they're just the opposite of what people think of when they think of America and economic opportunity. And like you said, they require people not just to get an occupational license. It's a special kind of license where you have to prove to the government that your business is needed. And how does it determine if you're needed? It calls upon the incumbent businesses and asks them. They can literally protest any new application and show up to the applicant's hearing, which is akin to full-blown litigation. There's attorneys involved in everything. And the incumbent businesses argue that no new business is necessary because they can handle any existing demand. And not only is that just bad economic policy, um, the people who are best equipped to know whether somebody is needed is the consumers. The government does not know, cannot prejudge for the entire economy how many businesses are needed in each industry. We let consumers decide. They are they decide for themselves. That's what leads to efficient outcomes. But imagine, it's not just the government now. Now they've delegated to the incumbent businesses. They've given them a competitor's veto over any new businesses. And the predictable result is that in certificate of need industries, there is higher prices, a shortage of surge, short a shortage of services and poor quality services, um, and it's really quite tragic when you meet some of these clients who, you know, I had a client in West Virginia who started a moving company. He had no idea that this law existed, and he had worked his whole life to save up to purchase this moving company, and when he did, one of the existing moving companies 
ratted him out that he didn't have a certificate of need. He had no knowledge about what this thing was. He thought, oh, that can't be too hard. So he goes through the whole process. He ends up spending a year of his life in $10,000 only to be denied. You know, he's about to lose his entire business that he built with his wife. And we took up his case. And once again, in that case, the government actually ended up folding at the end and repealing the law. Um, which deprived uh, us of our court yes. victory. Oh, no. <laughs> but, yeah, but it was good for the client. He, he His wife had actually passed away um, while they were fighting for their certificate of need before we took up the lawsuit. And um, he said that when the law passed repealing the competitor's veto law in West Virginia, he felt like he had carried out his wife's wishes, and he named the law Stephanie's Law in oh. her honor. So it was very fulfilling work. It's... You know, we were happy. That is such a great reminder that we're talking about real people here. These are people who don't have the vast resources of major corporations that they can easily throw lawyers, guns, and money. I guess not guns, but lawyers and money at different problems and resolve them. But for a regular entrepreneur, and you know, most of the entrepreneurs in this country are tiny micro businesses. They don't have a lot of, uh, you know, assets or war chest that they can rely on when they run into these problems. And you see selective enforcement, I think, as well. Like you're saying this uh, moving company entrepreneur didn't even know that he had to do this. So it can it can be used as a sword against your competitors. And $10,000 is a tremendous amount of money for a small business person trying to make payroll every week. And I think this has just been underscored with all of the financial distress that we've had during COVID. What, what do you see as the path back to economic recovery for our country? Yeah, well, COVID has been interesting. Like I said, courts have become more interested in the right to earn a living somehow, which has been a great surprise. But also policymakers have been forced to grapple with all of the red tape because even just with confronting the pandemic, for example, in the medical industry, we had to get rid of a lot of red tape to make it through the pandemic. You know, when doctors and nurses were trying to move across state borders quickly to hotspots and such, you know, occupational licensure became a big issue because people started to realize it makes no sense that if you're licensed in Nevada, you have to, if you were to go into Arizona, you would have to get a whole brand new license in many cases, go through years of education and take more tests and whatnot. That doesn't make any sense. And so we saw states starting to engage in interstate compacts or recognition of -of out-of-state licenses and sort of ratcheting down um, the barriers to earning a living in other states. So that's just one example. But telemedicine is another. Telemedicine was really behind the times. I think it was part just because government can't keep up with innovation. And so it was just behind the times. It didn't, for example, reimburse um, when it comes to Medicaid or Medicare for certain telemedicine services. Right, yes. There's a little bit of antiquatedness going on. Yeah, I think that's a great point about the the medical changes we've had to be able to move on the fly. And you saw that also with some of the drug regimens. And obviously, the vaccine is a huge beneficiary of the cut in the red tape as well. Oh, absolutely. Now people are are seeing why, why in the normal case do I have to wait years to get a vaccine when we know now with the COVID vaccine, they had it a year ago. They had it within weeks of COVID coming on the scene. Um, so it's been really nice for people to wake up to the problems with red tape and to realize that sometimes it's doing more harm than good. So how do you pick the clients that you represent at PLF? That's a good question. You know, as a nonprofit, we only have, um, you know, a uh, limited amount of resources so we have to be very careful and also when you go before the courts you have to pick clients who have a good story and 
who present clean vehicles for the issues involved. Um, we are trying to vindicate our clients' rights, but we're also trying to set precedent. And you're not going to get good precedent unless you have good clients. And so we're really just looking for people who can, who want to be a part of it. I mean, these lawsuits go on for years. Um, it's actually really sad. The wheels of justice are slow, let me tell you. <laughs> right. And so you want somebody who's in it for good, who, who, you know, we don't, we sometimes get accused of, a lot of nonprofit law firms get accused of sort of being puppet masters and ginning up cases. We don't want that because if you gin up a case, the client isn't authentic and they could drop you at any minute. We want people who are fully invested and who are also willing to, to tell the story, participate in the media, um, and who are genuine. So it's sort of a combination of those things and then also making sure that the legal claims are strong. <laughs> yeah, and, and how do you, I would think for like this guy who had the moving business in West Virginia, if he does media appearances, how, does, how do you get them ready for that without coaching them so that they seem, you know, you don't want to take away their natural uh, personality or the way that they approach things but also as you know doing media interviews is a is sort of a stressful skill to acquire <laughs> yeah absolutely it's tricky business um because you do want people to be authentic i think authenticity is really easy to measure i think people have like an internal uh built-in authenticity gauge right right they can tell so we want clients to be authentic, but we also have to be careful. We are lawyers. We don't want them to say anything that could injure Prejudice, the case. Yes. <laughs> um, disclose anything right. privileged. So it's, it's tricky. We do, you know, we have a great communications team at Pacific Legal and they do talk to the client and, and we go over potential questions and, you know, they're not, clients are not just thrown out into the woods, you know, <laughs> they right. get some, some help from us, but we're always very mindful of, um, telling their true story and letting them shine. It's really not about us. It's about them. Um, people are more interested in human stories than, you know, boring lawyers talking about wonky things. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of human stories, you're very passionate about this. You're obviously very experienced. You've put a lot of time into this. How did you come into the liberty movement? What attracted you to be a lawyer and to pra practice this particular type of law? Yeah, I think... My instinct is that most people who become attorneys are told at some point when they are young, you should be an attorney. It's like we're all argumentative people. <laughs> and my mom <laughs> right. always said that, you know, she would tell me that it was time to go to bed. And by the end, she felt like she was on the defense having to justify <laughs> bedtime to me. Yes. You know, everything was a, a debate. So I've always been sort of a natural advocate. I've always been very passionate about what I felt was right. And for a long time, I actually wanted to work for the government. I thought that that was the solution to all the evils of the world. And that if oh, I could yes. just work in the government, I could help everyone. I always knew that I wanted to do some sort of public service type thing like that. Um, but as I went to college and, and at law school, where I studied under Professor Randy Barnett, um, who, as you said, when you were reading my bio, was the intellectual godfather of the Obamacare movement. I just started reading a little bit more and reading history and philosophy, and I realized that very often government is the perpetrator of injustice, um, not the solution to injustice. And uh, I realized that I wanted to work in the liberty movement instead, and it, it all sort of started with working under Professor Barnett when uh, Obamacare was first before the Supreme Court back in 2011, I guess that was. Yes. And, uh, yeah, that, that was sort of where I first uh, understood the importance of, of public interest law. And from there, um, I've never looked back. So we both know, and most people are familiar, that President Trump was able to nominate and have confirmed a tremendous number of judges to the federal bench at all levels, district, appellate, Obviously, the Supreme Court, he nominated and had confirmed three justices. Have you noticed a difference in any of your 
interactions and lawsuits with the new judges or the results coming from these or more originalist, uh, less political judges that were nominated and confirmed uh, under President Trump? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that originalist judges, I mean, by their nature, that's what they openly do, is that they care about the text of the Constitution more and that they are elevating that text um, above their own personal policy preferences. And so we get actual engagement with the issues, you know, holding the government truly to the limits in the Constitution. And when it comes to my work, which is suing the government for a living, yeah, I think that has a positive outcome for our cases. Um, And that's not to say that any of this is political, because I don't think it is. It's just to say that that is a judicial philosophy, which is that the Constitution's text is supreme and that judges are not entitled to change that text. And um, that's something that benefits liberty because the Constitution favors liberty. That's right. That's right. And I think I'm sure you probably saw the the congressional hearing where Jim Jordan was talking with Dr. Fauci and he's uh, Jim Jordan said something about what about liberty and Dr. Fauci said I'm concerned with public health and not liberty and Congressman Jordan said something like well that's clear and uh, I thought that kind of encapsulated the entire way that many governments not all governments obviously Florida has been an outlier in respecting liberty Uh, But it seems that has been the inclination of most of our state governments and a little bit of the federal government, too, in dealing with the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting. Even the Supreme Court has sort of pivoted. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was very deferential to regulation and to regulators and was kind of just letting it all play out. But a year in, I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that um, they need to be a little bit more skeptical of regulation um, because sometimes the government is acting well-intentioned and paternalistically, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions, frankly. (laughs) And sometimes the government is being crony. Sometimes it's acting at the behest of the politically powerful rather than uh, the general public. And so, you know, if anything's good, if anything good has come of the pandemic, it's that hopefully people now will have a healthy dose of skepticism when it comes to regulation. Yeah, we're seeing that that pivot like you're talking about. Uh, We saw that in a Supreme Court uh, decision last week, specifically dealing with California and in-home Bible studies and prayer meetings and things where the court had, as you said, had been very deferential. And we saw that case last summer dealing with, uh, I think it was Nevada, with the casinos and the gyms versus the houses of worship. And um, I think it was Justice Alito talking about there's no blackjack clause in the Constitution. (laughs) Right. <laughs> or maybe it was casino clause. I can't remember exactly, but it, it was pretty funny. Uh, but it does seem like the court is pivoting. But I make this point over and over again. I, I'm curious what your reflection on it is, though. We can't really rely on the courts to vindicate our rights. They don't take up enough cases. It's expensive because of the way we structure uh, court costs, attorney fees in our country. It's not a very efficient way of vindicating our constitutional rights or any of our rights. And it is important that we do that, what you're doing every single day. But there has to be a movement of the people that doesn't just rely on a few public interest legal foundations and courts because there's just no way that they're going to be able to stem the tide of all of the infringements on our rights. Yeah, absolutely, Gail. I'm so with you on this that we call the courts the last bastion of individual rights. It's it's where we go when the legislature fails us. It's what the courts are there for. They're there to protect liberty when the political process uh, inevitably infringes, infringes individual liberty. But it's not... 
the first place you want to go, um, they don't take enough. They don't take up enough cases. They are deferential overall to the government, and um, they're not policymakers. And so there is going to be a realm where laws are stupid but constitutional. <laughs> and so we have to start first with persuading the public that these ideas that are prevailing right now about regulation, you know, like the universal basic income, like the the measure in L.A., um, or like the woman quota, that these ideas are wrongheaded. And so, that's, and that's part of what we do at PLF is we're lawyers, but we also are in the ideas business, and we're really trying to tell the stories of our clients to the courts, but also to the public to show people the real-world effects of considering the right to earn a living a second-class right and to resorting to handouts rather than opportunity. Um, and resorting to quotas rather than, once again, equal opportunity. So I think you're right about that, that people need to wake up and realize the power that their ideas have and the power that they have over legislators that we can prevent these laws from getting on the books in the first place. I love that point that you just made, that it's not even just about these particular cases, which is very important, and you are focused on the individuals and what their problems are, but it's also being thought leaders and using the publicity of the cases to make people aware of these laws that they don't even think about. and they can actually work through the political process to put pressure on their legislators to repeal these laws. And you also mentioned the idea that we can have laws that are stupid but constitutional. And it reminded me, since we've been talking a little bit about Obamacare, that that's essentially what Chief Justice Roberts said in the Obamacare, if you remember, in the Obamacare decision. Right. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, you have to let the people have the fruit of what they have chosen. And That's exactly right. <laughs> it was... Yeah, he, he went to great pains to say that at the... When he was reading the argument, or reading the opinion from the bench, I think he said, you know, courts are not here to rescue people from the consequences of their political choices. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you guys did this to yourselves, essentially. Yes, and that just opens up a huge Pandora's box of, oh, okay, so if that's the new standard now, then how, how are you ever going to have judicial review on these constitutional questions? Because can't you use that argument for anything uh, that you just don't have? I, you know, I don't know why Chief Justice Roberts ruled the way he did on that. For me, it seemed like it was a slam dunk, easy thing. You can't you cannot constitutionally make every single American buy a product and then all of the exemptions and, uh, you know, political favors that were done through the implementing regulations of Obamacare. And it was just a nightmare. And then yet, yet the Republicans, when they came in, were completely unable to put through any alternative to it. So I think uh, Chief Justice Roberts felt pr probably felt pretty vindicated that uh, you know he, he was saying, well, the, if you if you want to change this, then you know how to do it. Uh, and then Republicans were unable to convince, like this thought leadership thing that we were just discussing, that it needed to be reformed. But unfortunately, we we as Americans suffer through these bad political decisions. And the Constitution, like you said, is the last bastion of individual rights. And I think I'm curious about your opinion on how uh, that is being framed in these national discussions about our political system. I, I have to ask you about this Democrat commission on or Biden administration commission on reforming the Supreme Court. Have you all uh, had any reflections on that or any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, not. I don't. I don't speak for PLF or other attorneys at PLF, but I'll tell you personally that if people perceive there being a crisis of legitimacy with the Supreme Court because it's supposedly so political, then why in the world would you propose a political solution which is only going to further tar right. tarnish the <laughs> perception of the court? I mean, yes. that's 
counterproductive and uh, court packing to me, it's just so absurd. You know, Breyer recently, Justice Breyer recently yes. spoke out against it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was alive, spoke out against it because they recognized the damage that it does to the court. I mean, I have a whole <laughs> rant about this issue. I'm so upset about it. Great. Um, because I think people don't fully understand the court. It's much more nuanced than they think. There are more decisions where there are weird um, alliances between conservative, so-called conservative and liberal justices, and there are plenty of 9-0 decisions. You know, it's it's not as political as everybody thinks. And here we are proposing um, a solution that's just going to really further call the legitimacy, legitimacy of the court into question. That's absolutely right. And I thought it was interesting talking about switches in language that when I think it was when Amy Coney Barrett was nominated, the Democrats all started talking about how Trump and the Republicans were packing the court. And it was complete refutation of the entire definition of court, the historical definition of court packing and trying to say the, the president's normal power to nominate and the Senate to confirm if you had enough senators to vote for confirmation somehow became court packing. And of course, it was repeated ad nauseum by the mainstream media. And now they've, you know, really, I think, tried to break open uh, the public's understanding of what the Supreme Court is. And part of it is just a lack of education about the Supreme Court that, you know, you understand it very well. A lot of people understand it very well. But I, I think most people don't really think about the Supreme Court that much. And really, they really shouldn't think about it that much. It shouldn't be a political, it should not be a naked power organ, as one of the justices discussed it many, many years ago. But it seems like it, they're trying to push it towards that. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the whole origin of all of this is if the government hadn't taken over so many aspects of our lives, the court wouldn't play such a big part in our lives because it wouldn't be so needed to challenge every policy out there because, you know, the government as a whole would play a smaller role in our lives. So it should really all be traced back to overregulation. Um, but I liked what you said about the wordplay that kind of goes on. I think it's such a travesty, the sort of Orwellian wordplay that people use to sort of confuse the issues and, um, you know, really throw people's perception into disarray. Because like you said, they call that, they call the, they call the normal confirmation process core packing. And then I saw a headline the other day that what Biden is doing isn't packing, it's unpacking. <laughs> Wow. And both of those are just flipping the actual definitions on their head. <laughs> and, Absolutely. You know, saying two plus two equals five to try to get what they want. And it's such a shame. It is. And like you said, when Justice Breyer made those comments opposing adding more justices to the Supreme Court, one of the organizations that is really pushing for, you know, the Supreme Court to just be a rubber stamp on the left's agenda, I guess, hired a truck to drive around D.C. demanding that Justice Breyer step down, that he retire. And not just because they want Biden to uh, nominate someone to fill a liberal seat, but because that was seen as uh, out of bounds, that Justice Breyer shouldn't be saying that. He should be down with the program. And I I just thought that was such an interesting commentary on how the left works that someone who has served, I you know, I don't agree with a lot of the decisions that he's issued, but uh, I think that's pretty, that's a pretty terrible way to treat someone. <laughs> right. Yeah, I saw, um, this all just reminds me of how there's this movement to have judges rubber stamp whatever, you know, party they purportedly belong to, whatever that party says, then the, the, the judges just go along with it. And that's the exact opposite of what we should want from judges. I mean, judges' job is to strike down unconstitutional laws regardless of who passed them and regardless of how popular they are. And I saw AOC say the other day, um, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that 
um, she can't believe that courts would have the audacity to strike down laws that are so massively popular. And that's just such a fundamentally wrong understanding of the court. The court is there to strike down laws in the face of popular support. <laughs> yeah. And every and- party should want that because the next time the other party's in charge, you know, it would just switch back and forth being rubber stamp when you didn't want it. We should want judicial independence. And I think everybody should keep that in mind. Yeah, and I doubt she'd say that about the new Tennessee law that is trying to restrict abortion. That's very popular in Tennessee because right. it's it's really just look at the issue. It's it's you know just so extremely hypocritical on these things. And when I was doing a lot of interviews when Justice Kavanaugh or Judge Kavanaugh was nominated, I did a lot of interviews, and I was trying to explain to people to conservative radio hosts and TV hosts, and they would say, oh, you know, Judge Kavanaugh is conservative and that's what Republicans want and blah, blah, blah. And I'd have to interrupt them every time and say, no, that's not what Republicans want. Republicans want an independent judge or justice who will decide things based on the law and be fair and independent and not put their policy preferences into their decisions. And yet so many people on the right don't understand this either. They think, oh, a conservative justice, we're going to you know, get the results we want. But truly, you don't want that because you want someone who can rise above that and really be faithful to the Constitution. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, I agree. And even as somebody who you know has strong opinions about public policy and whose job it is to you know, sue and hope that judges rule for me. I mostly hope that judges rule for the rule of law. Um, You know, that's what I think is best for a free society. I just think that is a great way to end this conversation. Anastasia, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find you and PLF if they want to know the cases that you're working on or anything that uh, your organization is really trying to publicize to people right now? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Gail. It truly was a pleasure. And people can find us on Twitter at Pacific Legal or I'm on Twitter at Anastasia underscore ESQ. And we also have a website, PacificLegal.org, and a blog you can find on our website. And we're on Facebook, so check us out. Thank you so much. We definitely will. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. on iTunes podcast, host of The Gail Trotter Show on YouTube. You can like me on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram. Please subscribe to the podcast and to the YouTube. And thank you all for joining us. And thank you so much, Anastasia.